Well, welcome everybody. This is a great crowd, and um, I'm going to introduce Diane, who I've never met until this evening. But I already love you, Diane. There's just something about you that just oozes compassion and love. So um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Diane and a little bit about her topic. She is the president of the National Alliance of Mental Illness, known as NAMI, in the DeKalb County chapter. And her topic is A Cookie for Each Hand, Two Sons with Bipolar Disorder, My Faith, and NAMI. So she's going to talk about it being a marathon, a sprint, a tornado, a hurricane. How do you help them? Are we, are we enabling them? How do we love them? Um, same thing that we deal with as, as parents of prodigals, although children like yours are not prodigals. Is that somebody talking? Is that you? Okay. I thought it was coming out of this because I dropped it. So Diane has lived in Atlanta for 40 years. She's been a nurse, a nurse midwife, a nurse educator. She has served as an active volunteer to children's school, their church, their community. She taught at the Lovett School uh, for many, many years and retired in 2014. She became deeply interested in mental health issues when close family members were diagnosed with bipolar disorder. She is actively supportive of their recovery and is a teacher and state trainer for NAMI Signature Program, Family to Family, having felt immense hope after attending it with her husband, Paul. She's committed to extending the NAMI program offerings to family members and peers so that persons living with mental illness may experience hope, support, and recovery. She currently, as I said, is the president of NAMI DeCab, and we have a very well-known DFACS attorney with us tonight also that I know will be very interested in this topic. Welcome, Dina. Uh, Dina and I deal with mental illness a lot, you know, in what we do in, in the court. So um, I'm going to pray for you, Diane, and then I'm going to welcome you to the podium. Heavenly Father, we just lift up this time to tonight, Father, and just pray that you will use Diane in a way that will communicate to us uh, how you would have us view mental illness, mental disorders, uh, whatever whatever the society calls it, Father, just I pray you'll speak through Diane in a mighty way that she will educate us but also offer us words of hope and encouragement. We want to give you the praise, the glory, and the honor, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Diane, welcome. So just to get to know your situation and, and who all I'm speaking to, uh, if you don't mind, and you certainly don't have to, but can you raise your hand if you're dealing with a loved one who has bipolar disorder? Do we know that? Okay, how about depression that's crippling? Okay, uh, schizophrenia, any issues? Okay, uh, schizoaffective, sometimes people are, okay. How about OCD or anxiety? Okay, so we've got a, a smattering of a little bit of all of it. Who in here has ever had someone tell you that you should just use tough love, kick the rascals out, they need to toughen up, grow up? Who's had that said to you by somebody who even loves you and your loved one? Yes. Um, are there any folks in here who are doing this virtually solo? You're a, you're a single parent or your child, your loved one's other? Okay. Is there anybody in here who is at, at a different point in understanding for the approach than 
your loved one's other significant other. So you've got one point of view here, and you've got the loved one in the middle, and you've got another point of view over here, and and never the twain shall meet. Yeah, that it, extremely common, very difficult. Okay. Um, who in here has ever heard of NAMI or knows anything about NAMI? Okay, so it's fairly familiar. Okay. Um, and I'm going to assume that most everybody here is involved in a faith community, if not this one, indeed. Okay. And since you are involved in a faith community, has anybody in here reread Job? <laughs> during this illness situation. I was relieved to be reminded that it was okay for Job to be angry and very frustrated with God because I certainly was there for a while. So um, that was actually a comfort to me to know that that is um, an okay way to feel. It's okay. It's legitimate. So who am I? I uh, you've heard a little about me, but what you don't know is that I dreamt from the time I can remember. Does anybody remember the society pages in the newspaper where you you know people got married and there was this long write-up of the lace that they had on the gown and the number? Uh, I can remember reading the Sunday paper with all that when I was 10 or 11. I mean, all, I mean, I wanted to go to college and do all that too, but my heart was in being a wife and mother. That was, if I didn't get to do that, I, I just had this emptiness. I mean, that was what I was called for, I knew. But I was miserable at dating. I could find the worst guys on the planet put me in a crowd, I could find them. Okay, none of y'all. Y'all are all good guys. I can tell. Every one of you is. But I could find the, or I would go years without the courage to even venture out and date. So my dream came true. I found my Prince Charming at 33. He was 35. Neither of us had ever been married. And we proceeded to have a family. We just, we were so happy. Things rocked along nicely for a long, long time, and then our first son uh, became depressed at about puberty. Somewhere 10, 11, 12, 13, somewhere in there, he came home from school one day and said, Mom, I, I, just, I just don't want to live anymore. Well, as a nurse, I know that's a little bit out of the normal. That, that's not normal. Okay, so we proceeded to start getting help and, and following up. It turns out that both our sons, both our beloved sons, live with bipolar disorder. I'm very lucky, and I, and I say that truthfully, they don't, either of them have addiction. And for those of you who live with, uh, love someone who has both addiction and a mental illness, you are on a more complicated journey. It is much more complicated. Um, if you can do anything to prevent addiction happening, you and your loved one will be better off. Um, so I, as John said, I, I have a background in nursing. I, I mostly quit 
um, early in my children's lives because, well, the first one was a piece of work. If any of you have ever had a real high demanding baby, this one screamed all the time. We got fired by the first daycare person that, I mean, really, you know, and, and, I, and my feelings were hurt in a way. But in a way, I was affirmed to know that this was a hard baby. This baby was hard to manage. She said, I can't take care of your baby and any of the other five children that are here. You can't stay here. So I quit and stayed home with them. Um, My husband is an engineer, and he's 72, and he's still working full-time to keep a roof over our heads. Uh, And he had a head injury in May, There are miracles that happen. At 72, he fell off a 10-foot stack of wood that he was covering uh, with a tarp for work. Uh, He's a manager at this uh, small manufacturing company. And he's had two different stints in the ICU with brain bleeds, and he's fine. He's fine. People fall from less height than that and don't live to tell it. So I'm very grateful that God spared us that additional burden. Um, One of the things you may know, if you don't, I'd like to assure you, if your loved one has mental illness, there is some genetic component to it somewhere in your family history. We know that now. It is beyond doubt There is, you may not know what the genetic history is, but there is genetic history. Now, why don't we know it? Well, because we're just now getting halfway decent at diagnosing it, and there's just now a reduction in stigma enough that people are willing to talk about it. Down in South Georgia, where I'm from, there was always somebody living in the back room that you hardly ever saw, okay? Uh, I mean, we've had it. We just don't know it. And that's true in my family. I know of no bipolar disorder on either side of my family or my husband's family. But there has to have been somewhere. Now, what I do know is that two of my three brothers have triggered addiction. They used first alcohol and then pills of various kinds long enough to become functional addicts, and they were functional. One was, wouldn't you like to know this, a corporate jet pilot, and one was uh, a a salesman, uh, six figures easy. They functioned, but they were addicts. When that use began in late high school, early adult years, There's no way to know now, but it might have been covering up some ongoing mental health issue. Back in the 60s in South Georgia, there really weren't many options to to get help. So um, there might be something like that in your family history where it's not diagnosed, not known, but it was there. So your loved one has some genetic risk, and what we now teach is that there is a second hit, a second hit of some kind, and we don't always know what that is, and there's lots of theories right now about what that is. There's genetics, and then something else happens to trigger the manifestation of mental illness. 
if you have a question, please raise your hand. If, if I know I'm going to get to the answer, I'll tell you to wait. But if you have a question, please ask it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Are you referring to something like trauma? Yes. Okay. The somethings can, and there's probably a dozen at least theories now. It can be childhood trauma. It can be birth trauma. It can be an infection. The gut, the, bi- the biome of the gut, the living organisms in the gut and intestinal system are known to be closely related to the um, hormones that the brain produces that prevent mental illness. And so there's some theories that the gut biome has gotten off whack. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, can we, can we pinpoint it yet? No. Do you remember the war on cancer back in the 70s or 80s? And lots and lots of dollars were put into research about cancer. And now, 40 years later, we can go in and in many cases, we can pinpoint exactly what medicine the cancer will respond to individually. We can look at the genetics of the person and know what's the best treatment for their cancer. We're, with mental illness, we're about 10 years before that money got put into cancer, okay? Someday we'll be there with mental illness, but we aren't there now. Right now, what has to happen is pure trial and error on the part of a physician or a health provider prescribing medication. It is pure trial and error. And you have to return and make sure the physician or healthcare provider gets an accurate report back, which in the early days of a mental illness, they cannot give an accurate report. They think they can, but they can't. So that's why family is essential to be involved. We have to be the witness when my son, when my loved one, when my father, whoever, when they take this medicine steadily, I notice that their mood's better, but they tremble. Their mood's not as good as it used to be. They sleep too much. So we got to give all that feedback because it is purely trial and error at this point. If our, young one, if our loved ones are young adults, they will live long enough, hopefully, so that that situation will be better at some point in their life. But right now, it's jumping through hoops, trying to find what works, and it requires an awful lot of patience on everybody's part. Are there any questions about that? What I want to say is my husband and I have five college degrees between us. We sent our children to an independent school. We value education. We've never been divorced. We don't have addiction problems. We've got everything going for us except a big bunch of money. I could use a big bunch of money. And if any of you want to give some, I could use it. But other than that, we are the white picket fence family as many of you are. And yet, the presence of mental illness in the family can crush a family. It can devastate a family and cause a disruption even in the marriage. So you have to be real careful not to let that happen. 
intentional not to let that happen. My first son, Matt. Oh, I'm going to just pass some pictures around, and it's going to be a real nuisance to y'all having to pass them, but I apologize. I just want you to know we're real. <laughs> so this is my, my sons and I when, we were, when they were young, and this is our first son at his Eagle Scout ceremony. Both our sons uh, got their Eagle Scout badge. And then this is our, this is again is our older son, Matt. He did a gap year after high school and uh, got into college and then got a job at Medieval Times. Worked there for five years. He was a knight, became head knight, was doing great, bought his own condo. But like I said, he had depression from puberty. Um, when I was in nursing school, We were told that you could not have a mental illness under the age of 18. And even if you had one, nobody could diagnose it and label you with that. It was just not okay to do that. We now know that a large percentage of mental illness begins in young adulthood, late late, uh, childhood, young adulthood. Most of the mental illness that you see will manifest by the age of 25. There are certainly people who don't manifest till later, but under 25 is 75% of the mental illness that manifests. So we were missing the boat 40 years ago, missing the diagnosis time and the treatment time. And what that has taught me is this is not one of the illnesses that you take an aspirin for and, and wait on Dr. Time to heal it. Dr. Time is not our friend with this illness. Uh, early intervention, early diagnosis, early treatment, and sustained treatment is what is going to make the difference in a long-term outcome for a person living with mental illness. So Matt's situation was confusing. He, he dropped out of high school. We let him because he was flunking. We sent him to a wilderness camp for a semester. He turned things around. He wasn't using drugs or anything. He was just very depressed, and nothing that any psychiatrist prescribed helped. Nothing helped. So uh, we were real happy when he got the job at Medieval Times. The second year there, uh, he bought his own condo at the age of 21, it's not a huge thing, but, I mean, it's, it's, he has a roof over. He uh, ended up going to college at Georgia State, kept the Hope Scholarship the whole time, uh, ended up with a magna cum laude in philosophy, uh, and then he st- stopped working there. He learned everything he needed to know, and unfortunately he's a little too... Uh, too bright for himself, and he gets bored fairly easily. So once he mastered everything there was to master, he was done. He competed in a TV show called Full Metal Jousting, which was on the History Channel about 10 years ago. Uh, The winner gets uh, $100,000. There were 16 men competing for five weeks. He took a lance in the groin and lived to tell about it. This is the kind of thing that he thinks is fun, okay? You, you know, you know the, okay. Uh, 
So he's he's been a handful since he was born, but not a bad person, not a you know, not never in trouble with the law or anything, just dealing with depression. We were so happy when he got the job at Medieval Times because it looked like his life was on track. He had something he enjoyed. It was physical, but yet taxed his brain too, and he needed both. And um, then after he left Medieval Times, he started uh, going on the road with the folks who put on the History Channel Full Metal Jousting show, and he was all the way year-round for about four years, uh, from Toronto to Alaska, down to Mexico, every place in between, jousting, riding horses. I think there were some women involved, but I I don't know. Um, I I didn't ask some of those questions, you know. um, (laughs) Some things mothers don't need to ask about. The thing about medieval times was they drug tested, and Matt valued that job very much, and he did not mess with alcohol or anything, because he knew he didn't, any time there was an accident, somebody was immediately drug tested. That's a very good deterrent uh, if you value the job. But the folks that went on the road traveling all around, those fellas didn't drug test. In fact, they enjoyed indulging in marijuana quite a bit. And Matt started using at 25 or so, which is really late for most people who are messing with marijuana. But, uh, and thank goodness, it was late. I had done a lot of teaching with my sons about avoiding addiction, having two brothers with addiction. So um, after a couple of years of using an increasing amount, he became psychotic at 28 He was um, sure that the computer light was talking to him, blinking. They don't blink. Computer lights don't blink, but he could see it blinking, and it was conveying something meaningful to him. That is psychosis. He's lost touch with reality. He has a belief that most other people don't share. His reality is not shared with the rest of everybody. I've got a few handouts that are over on the side table. One of them is about psychosis. If you have any questions, please help yourself to any of those handouts. So um, he um, got stabilized a little bit. He had gotten into law school at Georgia State, and um, he wanted to go ahead and try it, but it was only a year after his psychotic break and his physicians counseled him against going at that time, but he wanted to try it anyway. So he went and he lasted a week. Um, he, he, there was no way, he couldn't even process what was being said. You know, his brain just wasn't back together yet. So um, he's, he's got that kind of potential. In the last... He's now about to turn 35. He lives with my husband and I and sleeps in his childhood bunk bed. He uh, can volunteer two brief afternoons a week with um, a Latino kids at a nearby church. That's all he can do. He's lost seven or eight years of his life. We are four years into the application for SSI disability. He's worked enough on his own to obtain disability 
but he was denied disability even though he has three suicide attempts and only two times of working for six weeks each after and he got fired from both of those the administrative law judge that reviewed the case uh, at two years in in Covington said that uh, now this is a young man who's pretty intelligent she said you look too well put together and you are too articulate there's no way you can be disabled so we are now we now have a federal attorney at the federal level and the brief was submitted last March we were told it would be three to six months it's a year so we are footing all the bills for him or you the taxpayers are the two three times he's been admitted to Grady he has, you know, he has his condo, but that's it. So um, that's what we were talking about. That That's where Georgia is at in its support of persons who live with mental illness, serious mental illness. There is very little help. You have to jump through enormous hoops to get any help at all. He has officially got bipolar disorder with treatment-resistant depression. The mania side of the bipolar is well-controlled. He takes his medicine, very compliant, but the, re, the depression side is not controlled. He, he is he's miserable. He looks scary. He's so miserable. Um, Diane? Yeah. Is the depression side not controlled because the medication doesn't deal with that or he refuses to take the depression medication? He takes anything that the doctor says. He's quit using marijuana. He quit using marijuana a long time ago. There just isn't anything that works for him. Mm-hmm. He has done uh, an IV ketamine study at Emory and supposedly that can relieve suicidal depression immediately. Didn't even phase him six IV treatments. He, um, I took him to Costa Rica two years ago now for electroconvulsive therapy. Electroconvulsive therapy, a series of those treatments, costs about $30,000 here in the U.S. out of pocket if you don't have insurance. And since Matt isn't disabled, he can't get insurance. We would have to pay that. We could pay it, but then we would never be able to retire. So, you know, the government's going to support somebody, some of us. Is that what I mean, they call ECT? Is that what electroconvulsive therapy, yes. So we found a medical tourism occurs all the time, I found out, and I could get the same treatments for Matt in Costa Rica, fly there, live there, eat, whatever, for $10,000. So we did that, and it did help for about three months, maybe 50%, and then it tapered off. And he had another suicide attempt after it tapered off. So he's spent uh, two long, well, two nine-day hospitalizations at Grady, and he's bought a gun that we accidentally found with severe plans to die by suicide. so his depression is deep, and it's lasted now for eight years. Oh. The next thing, we're waiting for the disability decision, and the next procedure that's available for somebody with depression as severe as Matt's is a surgery where they 
wrap wires around the vagus nerve, which runs from the brain to the gut. Remember I told you the gut, there's a gut connection? They don't know why. It was discovered with Parkinson's. The wrapping wires and stimulating that, which the physician uh, ramps it up and titrates it according to what each individual patient needs and responds to, that surgery only costs about $80,000. And it works half the time. So that's our next option. We're waiting for that. Uh, there's a clinical trial, but to get in that clinical trial, you have to have insurance. So we're, uh, have you heard of the being caught between a rock and a hard place? That's where our family is. Yeah. And many of you are there or will be there because of the medical system we have. Uh, it's not your fault. There's very little you can do about it. Uh, we did find out that as an indigent person, Matt could qualify for some procedures through the um, county service board, CSBs, but not at the level he needs. Not, they don't do this kind of stuff. So we're kind of um, suspended in midair and have been there for a long, long time. He's alive. I know where he sleeps each night. He's 100 pounds heavier than when he was a knight riding on a horse. I don't know what to tell him. Um, This is our younger son, Will. Will was the opposite of Matt. He was easy peasy. He was, everything was a piece of cake with him. He was well liked by everybody. Didn't I, I was like, oh, thank you. I got one easy one. Thank you. Then he took a gap year also. Was perfectly fine. He went away. And when he came back, something was different. It looked like depression okay, we've been doing depression with the other one. I can do that. We sent him on to, we'd gotten, he'd gotten admitted to New York University as an actor-singer. And um, that picture is of him on symphony stage singing a solo in front of about a thousand people. Uh, So he went to NYU, and within the first semester... It shifted, and this is true of classic bipolar disorder. It very quickly, there's a very quick onset. It very quickly usually shifts from what appears to be depression to, oh my gosh, they're psychotic, they're manic, they're out of their mind. They're a danger to themselves and others. So by late October, early November, I had flown up to to, uh, NYU Langone, I'm from South Georgia. I don't know nothing about no New York. I'm telling you, this mama was on a plane. We heard from him at 3 o'clock. We we walked him across the campus to check himself into student services. By midnight, I was knocking on the door of the hospital. Let me in to see my baby. I didn't care what I had to do, but I was going to be there. Now, the problem is, I, I couldn't do what we all want to do, which is make it go away. 
We want to make it go away. Return our loved one to who we knew them to be. The dreams of Broadway, we got to find a way to hang on to that. Somehow, he managed to continue doing school. He even did a year abroad on and off medicine. And you'll know that if you've got a loved one who's new to medication. I don't want to take it. I found something on the Internet. I don't think I need it. I feel better now. Blah, 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 blah. I talked my doctor into not giving it to me. And I, even with my nursing background, didn't know at that time how critical it is to get on treatment and sustain the treatment. That is what is going to make a huge difference. It's not something to dilly-dally around with. The, the problem is for us as parents, it's happening at that critical time when we want them to be somewhat independent. We want to let them exercise some choice in things. And, okay, all right, if your doctor says this is okay, oh, oh, well, the doctor was in New York. I'm in Atlanta. I should have, we should have immediately brought him home, got him stable, and, and then decided about college. But you do the best you can while you're walking a journey that you never plan to be on. So I try not to feel too much guilt. He did, uh, his bipolar is a little bit different in that the depression side is pretty well controlled. But the intrusive thoughts, the manic side, the psychotic side, the side that doesn't respond to reason, that part isn't well controlled. So he is on a very strong antipsychotic medication which makes him sleep 12 hours a day and it's all he can do to get up then. He is able to work at the manufacturing company my husband manages. He works four hours a day, three days a week. That's not a lot, but it's something, okay? It's hard for him to be there by 11, and he goes to bed at 11 at night. The medicines do that to you, and he too has gained 100 pounds. Uh, Oh, there was a brief amount of time, about six months, where Matt got his younger brother, Will, a job at Medieval Times. So for a while, I was the mother of two nights. (laughs) Two. And this is Will in a play he finally was able to do. He's so anxious when these intrusive thoughts come on him. He's so anxious that he just about freezes. Now, what's the last thing an actor-singer needs? (laughs) Paralyzing anxiety. Okay. So he is now stable enough. We brought him home in 2013 with one semester left to go at NYU to complete his degree. And he finally got stable enough uh, to take a few courses a semester at Georgia State, graduated in, in 2016. He's just now found a, a medicine that works well enough that the anxiety is knocked back and he's taking a professional acting class at a studio just to get his toes back in. If he, if he can do that just a little bit, 
it would give his life joy and meaning in a way that working 12 hours at a manufacturing plant won't, you know? That's just the way it is. Yeah, an example for my son would be, I'm looking at you, but over here I can see him, and he reaches up and touches his nose. My son has spent money going to a body language expert because he is sure that his mind has figured out special meanings of body language. Touching your nose means this. Touching this side means this. Pulling on your ear means this. Scratching your neck means this. None of us would even notice that these things are going on because we can filter. We can filter. So he has those kind of thoughts that irrelevant things mean something. Um, They're talking about us. They can. They're they're at a restaurant table and they're twelve feet away, but they can hear what we've said. And and I'm sure. So this is all subtle. Now he's not he's not doing anything about it, but it takes energy and takes his focus away from what he's able to do. So in that way, it's it's very energy draining. Does that make sense to you? Does that match your experience? He could. He he hasn't, but it could manifest that way. He's actually been very safe driving. He now manages all his own money. He lives in a separate small apartment a couple of miles away. He manages all his own doctor's appointments, medications, refills. He's very compliant with everything. His only ongoing issue is keeping those thoughts far enough in the background so that he can do life either at work or uh, fun, you know, doing, going out to a restaurant with his brother, you know. So, yeah. I just had a question. What uh-huh. triggered his mental illness? have no idea. Now, I'll tell you this. Uh, I'm sure that both of them would have manifested mental illness had they not used marijuana. Okay. Okay? okay? I think so. I think so. The truth of the matter is we don't really know what the association is between drug use and triggering the manifestation. You can't say you can't say that drug use or caused it. There's not a link, a causal link. The risk is already internally there. It's more like it opened the door. If if that's an a adequate analogy. I think we're going to learn a lot more. The thing I fear most about recreational use of marijuana and the legalization of recreational use, I have nothing against medical use of marijuana, but recreational use, they don't tell anybody that those of you who carry an inherent genetic risk may end up psychotic. Are you prepared for that? You know, And so in both my uh, son's cases, marijuana was part of the picture. With my younger son, the older one smoked solid multiple times a day for two years before he became psychotic. The younger one 
smelled it walking in the hallways at, of the dorm at NYU. You tried it a little bit when he was on his way to um, in Europe in Amsterdam, where you can buy it legally, and immediately was like not in this world fully. So they're very different in their sensitivity to it, but for both of them, I'm, I'm going to say it opened the door. And if they if they use again, it would again lead to psychosis. If you have, please don't let anybody tell you otherwise, if you have enough use, long enough, you can become addicted to marijuana, okay? You can become addicted to anything if you use it long enough. So, uh, again, uh, you know, our, our states are going to make a heck of a lot of money off the legalization of marijuana. They are not going to provide treatment centers and, uh, you know, drug uh, treatment and psychotic um, places for people to live who have triggered addiction and triggered psychosis. So uh, it it makes me mad. But I got a lot of things I could be mad about, so I'm going to be careful and choose just which ones. (laughs) Okay, what helped me with this uh, difficult situation? Well, I, I can honestly say my faith and NAMI. Um, my faith, I go to, we've been members of this church for a long, long time, and um, actually during the heaviest years of my son's illness, I could hardly make it on Sunday mornings. It was one of those times, and I begged churches to reach out to people, not like shaming, but just like, what can we do to help? I, I needed a morning where we were at home and we could just be still, you know. But um, as things have stabilized and are better, we're, uh, I mean, we tithed and did all that the whole time, but uh, we now are back uh, Zooming or in person whenever it is in person. My son, Will, the younger one who sings, has been welcomed into the church choir. We've been open about his illness and they know it and they love him. They have embraced him. Um, I'm so grateful to our church community uh, because it's a place beyond beyond the family where they've watched them grow up and, and they love us. And that's just beyond prices. You can't put a price on that. NAMI is a secular organization, but we do do presentations to faith communities. There's a a four-week series that I've done at a church, a Methodist church. I've done presentations to the um, Smyrna um, Diocese of Priests. I've done you know, I've done lots of presentations to faith communities who want to know some of the facts about mental illness. We're very glad to do that. When NAMI puts on something for the public, you won't hear much about faith in that. Uh, it's not that we deny it, but we just really try to be um, avoid anything that could trigger anybody and not have them listen to what the information is. So um, I 
I usually mention when I'm teaching an eight-week class that I am active in a faith community and that I urge people to find a community of some kind to extend the support that they get because it's, it, this is a long journey. It's a lifetime. It is never finished. And that is a, a long thing to walk by yourself. So it's best if you can find others who are willing to love you and care for you. Um, I, I do, uh, I've made a presentation at my church, a lunch and learn, and we're very open about what has happened. The only place I don't talk about it is at the independent school in town Atlanta where my sons went. They have asked that they be allowed to tell their story to those folks there where they were lifers. They went to Padilla School. And so I let them tell the teachers and fellow students. Uh, we try not to keep it a secret. Every secret any of us keeps increases stigma. And the stigma around mental illness is huge. And it is completely unwarranted other than that we're always afraid, as human beings, we're afraid of the unknown, the other, that which is different. And mental illness is, is not well known. The brain is the last frontier. That's the organ we know the least about. So there's, there is a lot of unknown that makes people afraid of it. Um, there aren't adequate treatments yet. But I, I do believe that standing up and speaking our truth helps the world be more accepting of something that my sons did not cause. They did not cause it. I can't cure it. It's, it's there, okay? Um, anything else I want to say about that? No. Okay. So what is NAMI? My faith community helped. How did NAMI help? Well, NAMI stands for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. It was started by a group of parents in Wisconsin 50 years ago, and it's gradually grown to be all over the nation. Georgia is one of the strongest states with, with the NAMI organization. We have a lot of services here, uh, and, and I'm real proud to be associated with it. The three things NAMI, at, you'll hear this over and over, education, support, and advocacy. That's what NAMI does. Educates the parents, or the, the family members rather, and the person who lives with mental illness. There's a concomitant set of classes that they can take for eight weeks. Problem is you have to be fairly stable to sit in a class and absorb much. So our, by far our biggest program is the family to family class of eight weeks for family members. Then there's support groups for family members and for persons who live with mental illness. So that's uh, education and support for both populations. And then NAMI tries to make the world a better place by advocating. And uh, NAMI, along with 14 or 15 other organizations, has been working for about three years to get the Georgia legislature to agree to put more money and more efforts into taking care of people who live with mental illness instead of throwing them in jail or prison. 
or leaving them on the street, which is the cheap way to deal with it. Uh, we, we do inhumane, ungodly things to people who, through no fault of their own, live with a chronic illness that they did not cause and it cannot be cured. So uh, to me, this is the place where I pray for God's presence and how we take care of people who can't help themselves. NAMI is a three-tiered organization. When you join it, you're a member of the national organization, the state organization, and your local chapter, like John referred to. Here, you would be in the NAMI Cobb area, a very active chapter. Uh, A lot of work going on here with that. Um, I would really beg you... If you, there's 20, about 20 affiliates all over Georgia. A lot of Georgia is rural, so they encompass more than one county, but there's 20 affiliates. Um, I would beg you to pick out some organization that has something to do with mental illness at a national level and join it, even if it's just paying the $60 a year dues. Why? When these organizations advocate for our loved ones, the numbers matter. The dollars matter, too. So if you've got buckets full of money, you can give uh, to anybody in one of these organizations. But in our family, in lieu of buckets full of money, all four of us are members of NAMI, and I'm actually a member of every mental health organization I can find uh, because... I want to know what's going on. Every one of the organizations has a different approach, a different population. And their numbers, when they go before grant writers or our senators and representatives, their numbers matter. How many people are in your organization? Okay, it's a problem. You got a bunch of people. Or, no, it's not a problem. You don't have a bunch of people clamoring. So I really invite you to, um, what can I say? Has God laid this on in our paths? I I guess so. I hope I've risen to be a good mother of two sons who are wonderful young men who have a crippling chronic illness. One of the things I can do is try to change the world for them and that's about all I can do, okay? I've gotten them compliant with their meds. They're good men. They do the best they can. The rest of it is going to be me raising Cain, okay? So I invite you to think about and find an organization that suits you and join it, even if you just pay the dues. Now, why was the education class that my husband and I took seven years ago now? Uh at Peachtree Presbyterian. Thank goodness for the people who had been teaching it there. Why was that so important? And this is my husband and my sons just recently uh, in the last couple of years. Um, Well, the class was important because like you all are now, you're sitting in the presence of people that you know and you know they know the journey that you're on you know you're not alone. You know you didn't cause it. You know 
It's not in your loved one's life because you forgot to pray enough. You know it's not in your family's life because God is punishing us. There are a lot of people who don't know that, who go to a church that tells them that. And there's a lot of pain and agony because of that added on top of the pain and agony you already have. So I'm real grateful that y'all are here and speaking on behalf of, of your family. Um, one thing I learned in this class seven years ago was a word I had never heard before in nursing school anywhere. Now, I'm feeling a little chipper tonight, so I'm going to show you this song, okay? The song I made up to help me remember how to spell and how to say this word, because it is such a weird word. (laughs) Anosognosia. Anosognosia. Okay. It comes from... It comes from the Greek, the main part of the center part of the word, gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, gnosis, means to know oneself. Anno means I ain't got that no more. I don't have access to it anymore. Anosognosia. Loss of insight into the self. I'm not ill. You're ill. I don't need to take my medicine. You do. There's nothing wrong with me. Why don't you go see a psychiatrist? Has anybody here ever heard anything like that? Anosognosia is the name of that. Now... Here's the way you remember it. A-N-O S-O-G N-O-S-I-A Anosognosia Anosognosia Not a friend to you or me Anosognosia Anosognosia Etc. 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 Okay, I'm going to pass this handout around, but you have to promise not to read it right now because I have to say a few more things. Anosognosia only happens when our loved one is very, very ill. So it's a friend in that when I see anosognosia, I got to stop talking and arguing and get to the doctor. There is nothing I can say or do. Rationalization is out the window. I have no one over there in that body who can respond to anything I say. Don't waste your breath. Don't argue. Be loving and kind. Treat them with dignity and respect and get to a doctor ASAP. Do whatever you have to. Change the medicine. Increase the medicine. Try something else. Find where the pills have been spit out in the corner of the room. Something is not right 
with the medicine and you need more, better, or different. Anosognosia can be our friend. It lets us know that things aren't going well. When you see it, don't argue. Just love and get help. What questions do you have about that? Okay, the real trick is, how do you get them to get medicine? Anybody had a problem with that besides me? Okay, it's not easy. It takes time. It took us time. It took me stumbling, fumbling, and bumbling around. I tried to treat my young adult male sons like they were still teenagers that I could sort of boss around. It does not work. Do not go there. It's a waste of your time, and it will set them at odds with you. Be very loving, very respectful. Treat them with the dignity that all God's children deserve. And then figure out what you can do to get them to comply. You can't change them. What I'm going to suggest is a couple of lawyer terms, or at least one lawyer term, quid pro quo. You do something and I do something. Now the problem here is we all want to be unconditionally loving parents. We don't want to put a condition on our love. But I'm suggesting that when they're ill and they've lost insight into that illness and they cannot figure out, but they think they can, what they need to do in order to become stable and, and in recovery, you don't have much that you can do. But most of the time, our loved ones want something. Whoa! <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad we didn't go all the way down to the floor. I would have had to crawl, call in a crane. <laughs> I'm serious. I don't get on the floor anymore. I've got two shoulders, a hip, a knee replaced, and a back fused. I would have stayed here till next week. Okay, so... And, <laughs> so... Um, one of the, I mean, the, the, there isn't enough time for me to go into it in huge depth, but what I want you to think about is what am I doing for my loved one that they want from me? And anything you offer them or anything you do for them, have them have some action that, move, that you know is going to move them towards wellness stability okay example we wanted our son to begin thinking a little more clearly this is the young one who was first living with us so at night I got a little card he loves money he couldn't work there's no way he could work so I gave we promised him okay ten now if you have a child who's using drugs actively using drugs you can't give them money Okay, you have to put it in a bank account, or you can't give them money. They're going to abuse the situation. But he wasn't using drugs. Okay, come in each night. We'll write on a on a card, a five by seven card, what you're going to do tomorrow. And it was simple things: make my bed, 
call one friend, find something to laugh about, find something that's beautiful, and notice it. Real simple, real simple. At first, real simple. And then, if there was an appointment, he would write that down. So he's starting to get his brain back. Now, this is a kid who made 32 on the ACT. He got into NYU. And I'm having to remind him to call a friend the next day, okay? But we started putting a little bit of structure around as he could tolerate it, and I rewarded him. I, we, I say I, but my husband is fully on board with this, and thank goodness. We mothers love our children, but it is so much easier when we've got a good man who is with us on the journey, and that's why I say any man who's here tonight is a good man, okay? I'm serious. Um, So uh, leverage is another word I want to use. Leverage whatever you've got that your loved one wants. Does he want $10 to go to a bar? Okay, I'll give you $10, but after, after, always after, you clean your bathroom. It's something simple. You always get the reward after the action, okay? Otherwise, it's going to backfire. You're going to end up being resentful. They're going to manipulate you. You're going to feel manipulated. I will be glad to give you a place to live, son. And you'll see this in an essay that I'm going to make available to you that I wrote. We had finally, it took us years, but finally we came up with five conditions that were the bottom line. You can live here. We will feed you. But to do that, you have to, let me read them or I'll forget them. Okay, we've got a little bit more minute. You have to see the doctor and the therapist. Now, I don't mean to imply that these should be yours. But what I do encourage you to do is think about what your bottom line is as a family. What do you insist that your loved one do as the bottom line? Make it as small so that they can succeed as you possibly can. Does that make sense? You want them to succeed. Succeed. That's why you don't start out putting them in full-time work right after they get out of the hospital. Okay? You want them to succeed. See, the doctor, do exactly what the doctor and your therapist say to do. No more looking stuff up on the Internet and fighting with them about what medicines you're going to take. You will take what they say to take. Okay? That's the bottom line. Sign the HIPAA forms so that we can accompany you. If you don't want to do that, fine, but you need to find someplace else to sleep. Now, does it hurt? Is it scary? Yes. What I'm suggesting, however, is that when things are imbalanced between us and our family members, we wear out and we become very resentful. And we start yelling and screaming and threatening to kick them out of the house anyways at some point. So we might as well do it calm, thoughtfully, 
and upfront. Now, please remember, this was years for us to figure this out, okay? Years. It's not easy to know how to deal with an adult who is not self-supporting and won't do what's in their own best interest. There's not a class you can go to about that. We finally figure, okay, allow enough for us, allow a family member to accompany you on physician, not therapy, but physician appointments. Why was that? Because I wanted to be able to report what I was seeing to the doctor. I, I couldn't rely in those early years. Not that they're lying, it's just that their perceptions are very different. And then... Uh, if we needed it, one of the requirements was allow a family member to set up and witness medication taking. Well, that went by the by very quickly. What, the thing about anosognosia is that once they start getting on the right medicine at the right dose, for most of them, it recedes. It recedes. The anosognosia goes away. My sons, when they're in serious mental illness and psychosis, you can't tell them, son, do not walk on the edge of your balcony railing in the condo because you might fall. And he did. He was psychotic. He fell to the first floor. He then went and climbed the fence to get into the pool, which was closed for the season. And it, it was midnight. He climbed a really high fence bathed in the pool because the voices were telling him if he did his foot would be healed it hurt when he landed on concrete 10 feet below the railing yeah yeah the challenge we have as it relates to uh, the ultimatum or the leverage regarding asking him to leave he actually wants that I mean he yeah. home a tent. E- each of our each yeah each of our each of our children we have to respond to differently we have to know what motivates them and we have to think about what am not my sons are eagle scouts but they do not want to be uncomfortable okay that's a good thing i know that it takes a lot to earn those eagle scouts i know i know they know how to camp they don't want to do it especially not in the cold weather so i don't have that problem they like a nice soft bed they like food so you know you have to know your child and what motivates them and address your um, package of approach to meet their needs okay son we will put you in your room and you won't get to go outside at all I mean you know you do the opposite of what they respond to Um, Sure. You're handing out great resource information. Yeah. If somebody comes to us, any of us, and says, I don't have a psychiatrist or psychologist, and I've got a mentally ill family member, does mm-hmm. Tommy have a list of resources that they can refer to? Or? We, we don't because that would look like an endorsement, but informally in support groups, you can talk to people and get lists. You can get names that way and that's one of the reasons support groups are so good because you can talk and you can find out yeah there is a way to get a college loan forgiven 
for someone who has serious mental illness. I found that out at a support group. So, yeah. Um, what do you know about QNRT or um, Dr. Amen Clinic here in Atlanta doing brain My sons have been very interested in that, both of them as an adjunct, as a nurse midwife. My heart is in alternative care, the least intervention possible. So I, I love what he does. I, Dr. Amen? Or yeah. Yeah, all, all that. I, I love what he does. The problem for my sons, they, they have very serious mental illness. Um, it, it, there's, not, there's barely serious medications that will help them. They want to substitute uh, levetiracetam. I mean, they, I mean, all these names of supplements I've never even heard of and vitamins and, and, and doctors that do alternative approaches. I don't mind adding that to what they're doing, but the years of me tolerating them doing that instead of Western medicine are over because it didn't work. And I don't think it's going to work with serious mental illness. Now, if some of you have loved ones who's, who are living with a mental illness that's maybe not serious or as serious or, you, you know, try it, certainly, but don't spend a lot of money or a lot of time because remember, we found out with um, schizophrenia studies, and I'm extrapolating, you shouldn't do this with research, but I'm going to, with schizophrenia, they uh, found out that the longer you delay treatment, the harder it is to recover, the harder it is to return anywhere close to the previous level of functioning. My suspicion is that that is true to some aspect with all the serious mental illnesses. I'm not talking about walking around depression. That probably is helped by the food you eat and exercise and and some vitamins and like that. I'm talking about hearing people in the next room who aren't there talking about coming in to kill you. I'm, t I'm talking about that level of serious. I've not seen that helped by anything other than a physician who knows what he or she's doing with serious medications. Psychiatrists, yeah, and there are psychiatrists who deal with the walking wounded, you know, those of us who get around and do life but have our issues that we need help with, and there are psychiatrists who deal with serious mental illness, okay? You want somebody who doesn't have a beautiful waiting room. Why do you want that? Because that means they're seeing Medicare and Medicaid holder patients and those people are seriously mentally ill am I making sense mm -hmm. okay I'm, I'm not saying don't go for a beautiful looking office for your doctor but don't be turned off like I was when I first went to this one physician and 
that I love now, I would crawl across the Sahara for this man. He has never given up on my sons. He has tried everything. He is relentless, and he still has hope, and he has earned their trust, and his waiting room is clean, but it is not fancy. And that's because he's willing to take the Medicare, Medicaid reimbursement level rather than charging what a private insurance company will pay. That, that's just one little tip, okay? Does that make sense? To, okay, yeah. Now, if you've got a, a, a really great psychiatrist and he's got a fancy office, keep going to him for heaven's sakes. Don't, don't, don't be mad, mad at him, but um, don't look for that. What you want to look for is somebody who can relate to your loved one and earn their respect and trust and that your loved one likes. You had a question? Yeah. Um, do you think there's a, a, a point there at some point with, with certain doctors that they get to a point of what I would refer to as medication madness? Like medication what? Madness. Like... It, Say it. Say it again. Say what you. Madness. Like, say what more about what you mean well, by that. I mean that it's like they. It's just a constant flurry of just just trying all kinds of drugs in short periods of times, and it just there's nothing else that's ever talked about as other than just drugs, drugs, drugs. <laughs> well, I, 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 I'm I'm just going to be as frank as I possibly can be. I am not a drug-oriented person. As a nurse midwife, we were trained to use everything but mm-hmm. pain medicine. You know, that there's lots of ways you can help somebody who's in childbirth without using drugs. But my sons have been a danger to themselves and others. And nothing has turned that around but drugs. Now, the flurry part of it I worry about because it does take a while to try something and then ramp it up over time and watch the symptoms and get reports back. So the flurry part of that I would worry about a little bit. But there is no thing else that's effective for serious mental illness. You can add all those other things to it. My sons take walks. They get an occasional massage. They do take vitamins. I cook organic food. You know, we do all that in addition, not instead of. Does that make sense? Okay, now I have to tell you the name of the why I titled this Two Cookies. Oh, before that, self-care is the other thing in NAMI. The most important thing you will do for your loved one is take care of yourself. No matter how that looks, it's not being selfish. You must take care of yourself. You must allow time for your hobbies, for your work life, for your primary relationship. If you don't have those, you can be of no support to your loved one. Take time for yourself serious no guilt so two cookies when my sons were little the next door neighbor did something I'd never heard of we'd go over to visit her and her husband who were retired from the CDC and she would she would pull out a bag of cookies and she would and my sons would take one and then she'd say oh no 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 I want you to have two one for each hand 
I'd never heard of such a concept before. My pa- my mother, you were lucky if you got one. Yeah, I'm serious. You were lucky if you got one, and you better not complain about it. Consequently, well, she didn't know this till many years later. The minute they would leave the house to go to for anything, I was the I was in charge of making the raw cookie dough. And we would make raw cookie dough, and me and my brothers would eat raw cookie dough out of the bowl straight because we were so denied our cookies. What I want to say is you don't want to eat the whole package either. Two, one for each hand. Find Faith and Nami. Find this support group and something else. Find enough to help you get through this journey, but don't eat the whole package. Don't drive yourself and your loved one nuts jumping around from thing to thing trying to find the answer. Find what works for you, hang on to it, and keep walking. And on those days when you can't walk, you can lay in bed and pray. Or you can just lay in bed and rest. There are days like that for me still. It's okay. Thank you.